hello everyone. Welcome to the Speak Up podcast where we talk about conversations that make things happen, the conversations that we need to have, that we want to have, maybe that we're afraid to have. And today we have someone super interesting. His name is Fred Dust. And Fred is, I just love talking to people like Fred because he has this crazy background. Like he thought about being a guerrillero in um, Zimbabwe, you know, like who does that? I think if we had the, if he could have, he would, it might have joined the French Foreign Legion. And then he became an architect. And then from there he went to IDEO, which is the fancy schmancy design <laughs> firm you've heard of. He was a senior partner and global managing director there and, you know, just so helping with all these major design projects in the world, which of course involve conversations. And so he's taken everything that he's learned as an architect, designer, um, change agent, and put it into a book that's really interesting about communication. <laughs> so congratulations for doing that. I think it's funny when, when you didn't say like actually interesting, right? I always feel like people are always like, it's actually interesting. You're like, okay, sure. It's like, by the way, that was the best bio. Like, it's like, it's kind of like no big deal. It's like, let's not treat it like a lot of stuff. It's just like weird is what it is. So Fred, tell us, how did you go? Because you were very early interested in politics and I think art also from what I remember. And then you so say, how did you make that switch? Like, have you always been, were you like the five-year-old activist or, you know, what happened? You know, it's funny. It's like, I'm, I mean, just to give you a little context, I was like a gay kid growing up in the eighties, right? Mm -hmm. which, which is like, so like, if you're like, I mean, to be really frank, like you're sitting around being like, I'm never gonna ever be with somebody because that, that was like, that was kind of what it was like, you know, at the time. And so, um, the first kind of way to, for me to channel my activism was really thinking about gay politics, which, as you know, like that's the shift from the Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. like going to Zimbabwe to work with guerrilla soldiers. <laughs> like I can just go do this on the street, like it's the same thing. Um, but at the same time, it was nuanced because I had to stay closeted because my my dad was the headmaster of my school and really didn't want anything but the perfect child. Like so, I had to date cheerleaders and whatever. And so, oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. By nature, in my identity, there was always this kind of political struggle. And and when I finally came out, I was like, to make up for the fact that I've never been able to be out for so long, I'm going to basically make sure that like everyone knows who I am. So it doesn't matter if I was like in the American South and dealing with a super conservative organization. I was like, this is me, you know, and it's like, you're going to accept me or you're not. And what I found is when you are open about it and people start to like you, they accept you. So the reality, a little bit, Laura, is like every conversation in my life has had politics as an as underlying aspect. Does that does that make any sense? I'm curious. Well, I mean, I I would question if every single conversation, like, honey, what's not for every, dinner? Not everyone, but it's like, but it's, you know, a lot, but a it's, lot of yeah, big thing. It's a motivator. It's what animates you. I think you're. I mean, I'm just reading your. You know, there's this a drive throughout all your work and for you and the audience who haven't read the book yet. I mean, he's worked with governments in Greece and Latin America and he's done a lot of interesting projects trying to, you know, bring change. And I like you, you may, you write in the book, a, some comment about the power of a conversation to change others or to change ourselves, which that 
to me is like uh, a macchiato for my heart. I mean, I just <laughs> love would. that. That's what I live for. So tell me, you know, like, tell me about that. Well, so, I mean, you know, this, this came like many books or many kind of, um, actually many pieces, I'm not saying this book is art, but many things that are creative acts, like it came out of a point of pain, right? Which mm -hmm. is that like, I, a couple kind of significant things happened. One is I was working on with the, with the former Surgeon General, he was about to announce um, an epidemic of anxiety and isolation and loneliness in America. And then he was fired um, by, by the current president. And, um, and that was horrible for me. And then all my work with government and philanthropy and nonprofits had changed because most things were focused on protecting basic human rights. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling like my work at IDEO was really focused on money and not focused on the things. And so I was like, what do I have to give? Like, it's like, is there anything? And I was like, I was like, you know, the most fundamental thing that I've learned is that you can apply creativity to even the simplest conversations and make them in essence, like 10 times, if not like a hundred times better. And we often don't think of conversation as a creative act. You do, but it's I like, do. you do, you do. And, and that's why I'm like, I was like, yes, I, I wanna be on, 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 your, on your podcast. Cause I'm just like, it is a creative act. And, and it's probably the most important tool we have in, in, in like in, 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 in human um, kind of existence. So the last thing I'd say is that when you look back historically, like you go back even like say 70 years, you can see a lot of historical examples where people have used conversation and designed conversation to really get to the kinds of results that we need to be getting to. And we can do that mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. One last thing I'll just say is that I originally thought that the book was going to be like about spectacular, like, you know, I don't know, famous people who do dialogues in the world. And I realized I was what, much more interested in the humble, like the religious women in Salt Lake City who wanted to read about Fifty Shades of, or read Fifty Shades of Grey, but were afraid and then became sex positive, sex <laughs> activists. Like I was interested in those people, mm -hmm. like the people who show us again and again that good, powerful conversations happen. Um, I love and, that, yes. So that, that was the big, that was the big motivator somewhat. So halfway through the book, I was like, I care about these stories, not, you know, I love prime ministers and stuff like that, but I, but it's, it's, it's these everyday people that, that I really like, I really, I relate to, I think. So. Yes. I, I'm, I'm just delighted. And of course I do see communication as a creative act. And, and in fact, what you were just saying, we brought me, I can't remember who said it, but the purpose of art is to tell the truth. And so you just take that, you know, what are we all struggling? Why are we struggling? We have this right. fear, but we want to tell the truth the way, you know, that's what right. we're seeing. That's right. So it's like, you know, that, that's a great example where it's like when they were reading Fifty Shades of Grey, as you remember, they were like, they were kind of like, what is this? We don't even, this doesn't even really happen. And by the time I was talking to them, they had just watched Deep Throat, which is a movie <laughs> I haven't even seen, you know? Oh my and, gosh. <laughs> but, but, the, but the way that they the way they got to the change they got to is that every time they read something or consumed something or watched something, they noticed the change. So it wasn't oh, just that that happened. They stopped and they were like, "Wait, something just happened in the room, and we've changed, and now we can get more brave, and right. now we can get more courageous." You know, it's like, and that's what advanced them. I mean, now they don't need the books. You know, right. they don't need they don't need the prompts. They don't need the films. Like, I stopped into their book club, this is the religious women, mm -hmm. you know, sexual, but it's like, um, and they're like, just talking, they just talk, you mm -hmm. know, about, about like sex inequities, things like that. Like, it's like, it's a really different moment for them. So. 
That is super cool. And, and it just points to the power of conversation of opening your mind. And I'm always telling people it's free. It's, you know, it's accessible. It's just, and, and, you know, it, it doesn't require that you get a PhD or become an architect or work for IDEO. It just requires that you think things differently. And it's the one thing we can all give. And it's probably the one thing that feeds us more than anything else in the world. You know, so it's like, so I'm just, I'm right there with you. Like, it's yeah. like, it's free and we don't take advantage of it. Like, it's like, so. Yup. So you uh, kind of dissed active listening a little bit, which um, <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, active. I think listening is hard no matter how you slice and dice it, whether it's active and you discuss a concept you call creative listening and, and the way, what I took away from that is like just letting, just, just letting it fall. You don't have over you. You don't have to hear every single word. Uh, just kind of get, you know, a sense of what is being said. Sometimes the emotion is so strong that it's really difficult to take in the actual words being said. But tell me about your development of that concept of creative listening and how it can apply at work. Yeah. And well, I think what I think Laura is interesting is that it's like you're, this, this, this feels like it might be an interview or a conversation, but it's not. It's actually a great example of creative listening because it's like I can sort of feel like what sparks your enthusiasm and what you're excited about. And when you're like, eh, I'm not so interested in that, like that's like that's part of creative listening is bringing ourselves into the into listening and recognizing that listening should be the greatest joy that we can we can give. And so there's kind of three components. I noticed it at work first. I noticed that like my teams had stopped listening and had stopped listening at really important interviews like they would basically i'm not going to do it because it's going to well you just would hear this kind of typing you know it's like because they'd be like taking notes the entire time and i was like you guys are supposed to be like watching people's body language and seeing the cues and like you're missing that and so i my first thought was my mother was an amazing listener she was just this kind of magical listener she had i think i'd, I'd say she's like I am sort of inherited, like I have a resting nice face. So people will come up to me and just be like, start talking no matter, no matter what. And, and my mom, as you, as you know from the book, when I was 24, she had a pretty serious stroke and was left aphasic. And um, listening became work for her. Like, it, like it's like, and she spent the rest of her life like in that, in that mode, 35 years. And so um, what I realized, so I would say to my teams, I'd be like, oh, hey, listen like your mother. And I realized, okay, that doesn't totally work for everybody. <laughs> It's like, so, and so I was like, I got to change that. And so I realized we were going to have to get some really serious methodologies around it. So as you know, from the book, I looked at Quaker listening, which is the kind of like, let it wash over you and like feel what speaks to you. And that's one more, that's one mode. Um, then there's things like, listen, like it's a secret or like, listen for secrets, like ask people to tell you a very, 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 very short story, like not a tweet, because that's really, that's kind of dorky or, or actually even worse. It's like, but a secret, like we love secrets because they bring us a little bit of joy, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and so I, in, the, in the book, there's like five or six different ways you can do it. And I can tell you like some examples about like how to tell a really, really short story, which is one of my favorite sections. But um, the reality is, that was a response what I recognized is that active listening had been misappropriated in the workplace. It, it came from Rogerian therapy. So it was a therapeutic practice. So if, if you were a patient, if you were like a therapist and you, you basically didn't believe that you could just solve all the problems using Freudian theory, then what you would do is be like, 
go on, like, let me hear more. And the reason behind that was, it was to trigger me starting to figure out what was wrong with me. So it had a very strong theory. Carl Rogers was a genius. I mean, he, he built the future of listening. It was not meant for the workplace. And the way we've kind of adapted it in the workplace is we're like, uh-huh, go on. Like what we're doing is like, you're saying it, but I don't want to take the responsibilities of actually having to hear it. Um, and so I'm just going to encourage you to say it. You're going to get it out. And then we're going to close the door and maybe I'll still fire you or whatever, you know, whatever happens. You know, like, and so that's just not right. Um, and, and I think it's one of the things that's really degrade, degraded conversation in the workplace. And so there, there's a lot that degraded conversation in the workplace, but, but that's, that's kind of one of them. And, um, and we need to find all the solutions like that you can possibly follow, like, like you, if you can find. As you know, in the book, I talk about how to give power to somebody who's, who you're about to critique, because that's something that comes up quite a bit in my work. And, mm -hmm. and I always believe that part of the job in a workplace is to stop and say, what don't you feel like hearing today? Like, it's like, what, 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 what can't I touch? What do you need help with? And because it's like, as I, if I'm giving critique of somebody's work or of, of their, it's like, like that's all met already a position of power that I Correct. have. Correct. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Exactly. And what are you ready to receive or right. And by doing that, it's like, yeah, if I, if I was sitting with you, I'd be like, if I do that, I'm like, what, what, what are you willing to critique? Like, you're, you're, I give you the power. Mm -hmm. And then that gives you a moment to basically say, well, here's what I can deal with today. And I'm like, great. Okay, well, let's go, go with that. Um, so, yes. so that's one of the things that, that, mm -hmm. that you use to kind of balance the, the playing field when you're in the workplace. Yes, I, I love that. And, and I think it is important to, for the person who is not in the position of, you know, official power, Right. And to learn ways to work around authority so that you get the feedback in the way that you can receive it. And that certainly is uh, one way. As, and, and I'm an introvert, so I think that's... Um, sure. it's, like, it's, like, it's like, that's a very interesting observation. I want to talk about that at some point, but go uh, Yeah, I'm a social introvert. I mean, I, I'm a, an introvert who learned to come out. I always tell people that if I had been born wealthy, I would be a no, morbidly obese librarian. <laughs> but uh, as life happened, I had to work for a living. So yep. here we are. So uh, getting people to tell stories. So many people in my coaching practice ask me about that. And we have, you know, the star, the situation, the task, the actions and the results. And we have, and I always uh, teach a feel, no do. How do you want people to feel? What do you want them to know? but you have a way of pulling stories out of people. So what, tell us about that. Yeah, and I'm actually gonna open to that section. It, it is, it's weird because I will be honest, I like, um, everybody kept being like, you're gonna have to write about storytelling. And I'm like, I don't wanna write about storytelling. And everyone's okay. like, it's like, it's like you, you're gonna have to write about storytelling. I was like, I don't wanna write about storytelling. <laughs> and, and it's mostly because it's like, there's gotten, it's gotten so, like there's so many different methodologies. Yes. And, and the reality is like, they're all good. If it works for you, I'm, I'm down for it. So it's like, but, 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 but let me interrupt and uh, interrupt you and say, but what about your illuminations that yeah. you don't consider that a story? No. So that's, that's the reason why I called it illuminations is because okay. I didn't want to say the word storytelling. So okay. it's like, so, so, so yeah. So, an so illumination, as you know, from the book is like, uh, I often ask, here's what isn't storytelling. I come home from work and I sit with you and I, I just, blab for two hours to you and like I'm just recounting everything that's happened or anything where I'm like 
oh, to tell you what ha happened to me today, I have to go back to when I was nine, you know, and then I have to tell you my whole, that's not a story. That's just like, that's just venting and that's fine. Um, and this actually came out of reaction of a friend of mine who does that. Like every story she tells, I and mean, she's actually not that close of a friend, every story she tells, she has to go back to like nine and then go all the uh, way through. And, like it's the whole night is lost to her kind of hogging the whole conversation. And so um, what I started to do is basically be like, let tell, tell me a 20 second story. So uh, this happened the other day. I was, I was in conversation with somebody who was in, had severe prostate cancer. And it was very serious conversation. I was like, I was like, tell me a 20 second story about when you had a funny experience in the oncology wing. And this is, this was actually on Friday. And, and that was delightful for him. And he could do it. He could tell you a funny, a little funny story. So I have a little secret. Do you want me to give you my secret? Yes, I love secrets. I'm writing it down. This is, the secret, this is the secret process of illuminations that you know, but like everybody else does, does, hasn't, who hasn't read the book yet doesn't. But um, I'm gonna tell you a story of my, my grandmother. So my grandmother was, when I was like, she, I was raised by my great grandmother, apologies. And um, she was an amazing storyteller. And she was a steel worker by night and she was a um, farm worker by day. And so she basically never slept. Um, mm. And I would sit on the kind of wooden swing with her on her, at her farm. And one night she told me the story about how she came home from the steel mills and she was so exhausted and she didn't think she could go on to the day to feed the men and do all the all her chores. And she saw this blue figure slowly coming down from the sky. She didn't know what it was. Like she, I mean, I was like, of course, I was like, it's a UFO. And then suddenly it was Jesus. And Jesus kind of like winked at her basically and then disappeared. And she was like, I'm good. I got this. Like I, I, I can do the rest of my life. So that to me is an illumination because it does four things really, really well. It's really, really, really short and really memorable, right? Like it's like, I will never forget that story ever. That story suggests an emotional response. So I'm not as good at telling that story as many as she was, but that triggers something to me. Like I'm like, it's like, it's both like a little bit of awe and a little bit of like, like wonder and, and, you know, even a little bit of kind of like emotion, like sorrow still to this day about losing my grandmother. Um, and illumination stops when it starts. So that's not the end of her story. Like she went on to live the rest of her life and Jesus, like that, like Jesus inspired her. And that's the story. It's basically like, it's the happily ever after. It's like, we know the real story is everything that happens afterwards, right? So, and then the last thing is an illumination has to have a twist. Like it has to be surprising, which is why we love Dark Mirror. And it's why we love, you know, Flannery O'Connor or why we love, you know, like you, you name it, oh Henry. Like it's like anyone who, Shirley Jackson, anyone who basically was like, they were, where, they're, where they're like, oh, they were gonna kill her with a rock. <laughs> it's like, that's why like she wasn't supposed to buy the ticket or whatever. It's like, like that, that twist is like is what makes it memorable. So those are the four elements of an illumination. And just by the way, it's named illumination because it's taken from the medieval manuscripts that used to have a little illuminations alongside the text so that you could basically say, oh, this is helping me understand something I don't understand, or this is helping me get distracted if I'm bored. You know, it's like, so that's, that's why illumination is, is such a, is a is such an elegant word, I think, for it. Yes, it is. It is an elegant word. And that surprising twist, I mean, that's that's a dopamine hit to the listener. We, we just love that. But, I mean, how can, how can it be that, does everybody have one of these? 
Every, everybody has, so Carson McCullers, I think famously said, if you live to 12, you have a novel in you, right? So it's like, it's like you, you have like, you have thousands and thousands of these. What I can do or what you can do as the person who's listening is we can basically, we can ask. So we can say, oh, I think I see a place where there might be a story. Let me ask you for that. So a very simple one I'll often use, and I do this with like CEOs and when they're talking to their staff right now, especially when we're dealing with really hard issues at work, where I'll be like, okay, let's say white woman CEO talking to um, black and brown, you know, staff, let's have everybody who's in this conversation talk about the most vulnerable them when they were 12. Like what was, what was the hardest thing that they experienced with 12? And so what that does is it just kind of brings us all to like, and it's not always when we're 12, but it brings us to a moment that's like, that, that's, that is like, okay, we can kind of empathize with each other. Like if I were to ask you, Laura, can you talk about a vulnerable moment when you were 12? That was so long ago. It was not. It's like, I, I remember <laughs> I didn't see you. So it's like, <laughs> don't, don't lie. <laughs> a, a vulnerable moment when I was 12. Um, well, when you're saying vulnerable moments, uh, the moment that I come to was I was not 12. I was 30. I was in the hospital in Venezuela about to give birth to a child and uh, I spoke fluent Spanish, but one of the persistent things I experienced in living in Venezuela is that if people didn't know me, they assumed right. that somebody that looks like me cannot possibly speak Spanish. That is just like, you know, yep. fish uh, running a marathon. And so I had all these nurses working on me, prepping me for the C-section and they were talking as if, I didn't exist and I've never experienced that before. And it made, I was crying. And then the doctor comes over and is like, um, you're supposed to, supposed to be a happy moment. You're about to give birth. Everything is good. What's wrong? And I just said, um, and you know, of course you're butt naked, you know, yeah. so that also adds to being vulnerable. Um, yeah. So that's a great example of just like, you know, like a very like short kind of little thing where it's like, it's like, and, and, and think about that, like you have like the twist is you knew Spanish and like everybody around you like uh, was speaking about you. And like, so that, and, and it, it kind of, there's a whole other story about how that went. <laughs> and we, and you never, you never bothered to tell us like whether or not like it was a successful labor and this, and like, and how, how things, it's like, you're just like, so you kind of left us with enough drama. And so that's a great example. It's like, it was, it was maybe a little longer than 20 seconds, but it's still pretty good, you know, I, I think. So, so that's a, that, yeah, pretty good considering you just, we did you just learned the technology. So. <laughs> that is it. And I don't think I've ever shared that with anybody. So um, that's uh, good for you because I'm, you know, like a good introvert, hate talking about myself, but I, 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 but see that, that kind of question is just gold, platinum, diamond studded, you know, for pulling out our humanity. That's right. For those who are willing and interested in doing so. And that, and that's the job of the question is the job of that kind of short story is like, let me see you as a human, you know, it's like, and let, and let me understand you in that, in that capacity. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I think we're all actually, balanced extrovert introverts i realized that maybe i'm I maybe more extrovert than i thought i was like during the pandemic so like, I, Surprise! I, I had to go like I, I always just have to go into like a hole to kind of like re redo like kind of re-energize myself but i realized i'm like that's a lot of energy so it's like but but um but still it's like 
that's these kinds of tricks help us do it, help us manage it. So. Okay, so now I want you to tell me another secret. I want you to tell me the secret of naming things because it is so true. When you name something, you pull that into existence. I mean, that's what, you know, the, even the Bible is like, God spoke and it was there. And we have that same power, but we don't name things because we think our name is going to be lame or boring. Or like, sometimes I get really clever with naming things and then people are like, what the heck are you talking about? Yeah, no, it's like it's and and it's a and that's by the way, like that. I think that 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 isn't in, in a chapter that's on clarity, which I, I will say I'm really embarrassed because the, the original chapter title was called Talk Normal. And, I really, <laughs> and in the Big first change. paragraph, yeah, in the first paragraph, I basically I use the word obfuscates and I'm like, okay, I'm talking about talking normal. And I use the word obfuscate, like, and like that's like the worst. I'm like, I was, I was like, I like called my editor and I was like, how did you not catch this? Right. So, it's like, obsequious the yeah, editor exactly. was being obsequious and didn't yeah, 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 yeah. but so it's like um so uh and so obfuscate like you know, you know <laughs> don't, don't make something less clear but anyway so it's like um the naming thing came out of a bunch of different things i mean it was always a convention of mine in the work that i did which is that i believe that if you named something that you designed that gave it like some kind of like hook a visual hook and visual is important like it like that, that, that you can see something it really helps. Um, and you probably read like in the book where I talk about the wine store where they couldn't get people to think about things that weren't wine words. So they like, you know, people really struggle with like people, the most hated person on earth is the sommelier because everyone's like, oh, this person has control of language that I don't have. And so I write in the book about a wine store where they just use, um, and they didn't want to use plummy or jammy or tannic or whatever, or any of those things. So they ended up using, they named wines after celebrities. So they were like, this is like Britney Spears, um, trashy but still drinkable. Or like, this is like Taylor Swift and it's like, you know, like everything's a gem. You don't, you don't realize it. You know, so it's, Taylor Swift, by the way, is my spirit animal. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I wish, I wish she was. I, I was like, I, I aspire. But, um, so, na what naming does is it allows you to kind of give a hook to something so that both, that you, you can tell if people understand it mm -hmm. because they'll start to use it. Correct. If it's named well. That's exactly right. So you'll start to hear the ways it's getting picked up. But it also, um, and that, um, there's a really funny story about that, which is there's a, um, there's a great book called Lost Words. I don't know if you've, you've come across the book. It's by Robert McFarlane. He's a poet. And this is a book that was like last year or two years ago, like I think 17 or 13, I, I can't remember how many words were pushed out of the original um, dictionary to make room for new words like cloud computing. So like mm -hmm. Acorn got dumped so that like cloud com computing could get in. By the way, oh my gosh. Cloud computing yeah. is a pretty good name, by the way. Like it's like when I say it, like it gives you a visual of what, what's happening. Like you can sort of see what it is. So I'm not saying don't put cloud computing in the dictionary, but I'm like, we shouldn't lose Acorn is kind of like his, his, his point. But so he wrote this book called Lost Words, which like brings back these 17 words. And they're like, they're like Acorn. I can't remember what the other ones were. I wish I had it in front of me. And what somebody in the Huffington Post wrote, and I can't remember her name, she was, it was a genius at a uh, review, is that with lost words, what he's triggered is this thing called frequency illusion. So once you learn the word, so once you learn the word acorn, or you learn the word cloud computing for that matter, you start to hear it and see it everywhere. And so a really common version of this is, I don't know if, like I have a thing where I see 1111 all the time. And I don't know if you've ever like Googled 1111, but if you do, 
there's a lot of theories that 1111 means that 1111 angels are trying to talk to you. Um, it's actually not. It's actually, it's a, it's a psych psychological um, trigger. Basically what's happened is you have this kind of, um, suddenly you see this, you have a frequency illusion because you've mm -hmm. noticed 1111 once, psychologically you're noticing 1111 all the time, which happens to me all the time. And like, I'm very superstitious about it. Like if it's, I, I see 911, I get really freaked out. Like the 1111, <laughs> And that happens pretty much every day. So I'm like, but so, but that's a, that's what naming does for us. And so I just was looking at Instagram where somebody, they, they like named a red boat, red boat. And I'm like, that's genius. Because you know? <laughs> it's like, because that, that's a, you will never forget that. Like, it's like that, 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 that image, it, it kind of sinks in. And so the story I tell in the book, I tell a lot of stories about naming things. But one is the time that I worked on a thing called business forensics. And that was because mm -hmm. a business was really dying and and I really and so I named it and it was very serious and it was a very somber conversation and at some point we realized we could start to fix it I changed the name to business fitness which was like something that was like adaptable and everybody could actually take it in and they were all excited and so you, you started hearing business fitness yeah the time. energy just shifts but 180 <laughs> degrees but here's what I realized when I was writing a book which is that both names mattered Yes. So forensic said, we're in big trouble. We have to see how what's, what's wrong with this business and we need to focus on it. And then the shift to business fitness says, we're pretty good. We think we know where we're gonna go and now let's get better. And right. so that transition, every part of that naming story worked, even though I didn't think it did at the time. Like I changed it because I was like, oh, business forensics is terrible. And I was like, no, business forensics is great for this moment. It's just yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a different thing. Business fitness is not business forensics, but they're both needed. Are they both are valid That's concepts? Right. And so the, the naming has to be like, I prefer it if it's like, if it's visual, if it's a metaphor, if it relates to something else that's in the world. Like you, you said that sometimes you feel like you're really good at that. Give me, can you give me an example of times when you've been not so good at it or like a, or names that you've given that haven't stuck or are you? Uh, I mean, well, like I had this book that I have ready to go and it's like, I've changed the name of it a thousand times. In the last iteration, I just call it the communication manual. <laughs> It's just like, I mean, you, if I remember before we got on, you actually critiqued my title. I know, you, that's why I want you to tell me how to come up with a good name. But also for tools, like I, like, uh, I have something uh, called uh, the Feel No Do, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I love Feel No Do because it's just like, it's kind of hard to mistake, right? Like, it's like, so I think conversation manuals may be a little dull because I have a feeling that your conversation manual is a little better, so. Right, so then another title that I had at one time was called Cultured, because I, I do, I believe that our communication shapes our culture and like you do clearly, even though you, that's not the, the focus of your book, but it's like on every page. Um, yeah, so it's like, I mean, like, like think about like Culture Kit or, uh, or or like, you know, it's like, what, what could we do that like gives us a little bit more visual? Like when I see a kit, you know, originally the book was designed around these seven things, the seven mm -hmm. were called palettes. And I mm -hmm. call them palettes because a palette is, a, it's basically a toolkit you can pull from, you know? So that's like, whether it's an artist palette that got pulled out or whether it's a palette that you use on Instagram, it's like, Bye. these are all the tools that we know how to use and you can kind of pick and choose. And so, Unfortunately, that's on the editing room floor, as many frameworks are often are. But, yes. But I really liked the palette because it was like, it kind of gave you a visual that, that like, no matter what generation you were, you could actually understand palette in one way or another. So your methodology or your process is to think of um, 
metaphors, analogies. Yeah, and it's and again, if it gets you so far and then you have to abandon it, then that's mm -hmm. like, so originally this was like gonna be called the creative palette, but we mm -hmm. had to abandon it because it just mm -hmm. didn't work. Uh, mm -hmm. It didn't hang together tight, it was too sophisticated. Um, so. Oh my gosh. All right, so we have to talk about something that okay. is so uh, affecting all of us right now in this moment, which is uh, in the fall of 2020. Constraints. Yeah. We have constraints out the wazoo. <laughs> and I think this is how I see people. It's like, you know, when you're in a crowded bar and you're, and there's, it's just so noisy and you're talking to somebody. So you really have to like kind of yell and you simplify what you're going to say. And you're like super. So to me, that can be our, especially at work, our work conversation only you can't see the, the bar and you don't hear the noise but in their head because you know they may be homeschooling their kids or the dog is gonna bark with the ups man comes and they're super anxious about the elections and the pandemic and their mother-in-law lives next door i mean yeah, yeah. Nice. well so yeah, let me let me let me go back a little bit because I think before you get to constraints, I think one of the things that I feel like is most important for us right now in this given moment mm -hmm. is chapter one, which is commitment. And it's and oh, commitment yeah. a constraint, but it's basically if you remember in that chapter, I basically this was because somebody asked me in a lecture. They were like, "This is when I was writing the book." They were like, "Well, what do you do to talk to somebody if they just don't want to talk? Like they hate you and they don't want to talk to you?" And I was like, "You basically say." Hey, can we commit to having a conversation? And if mm -hmm. we can't, let's not go into that conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, and if you can't, and, and committing to the conversation is not committing to your values or expressing yourself or trying to convince somebody of something else. It's just saying, for this moment, Laura, I'm committing to you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm in this conversation with you. Um, and when we got into the pandemic, because, you know, I'm still doing work with global leaders. I work with Rockefeller Foundation, I work with a bunch of um, major foundations focusing on global dialogue. I've, I've had to tell global leaders, like ex-presidents, like, yeah, you're going to get on Zoom. Sorry, it's just going to happen. <laughs> so um, I, um, I wrote in March 1, because I was already locked down, because I had seen the mm -hmm. pandemic like coming. And on March 1, I basically rewrote, I had to write a last chapter of the book that was like how to have the hardest conversations of your life during a pandemic via, via Zoom. And so I wrote these four if you remember, there's a short, like, two-page chapter at the end that's, like, four principles for how to, mm -hmm. how to have conversations over Zoom. And the first one is commitment matters more than ever. And so if you, if you can't commit, don't go into the conversation. So if you're not going to be in the conversation and you're not going to be able to, like, be um, positive and engaged, um, or if you feel like you're uncomfortable or you're afraid because, like, if people are not going to treat you well, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Don't go. I have a little bit of a thing where I'm like, except if you're the only voice of difference, then you kind of have a responsibility to go. Like it's like, I, I, then, then we need you in the conversation and, and hopefully somebody's crafted the constraints of a conversation well enough that voices that wouldn't get heard are getting heard, which is really Correct. important. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm spending a lot of time right now making sure that powerful people are seeing the people who are working for me, like the, the brown and black women who are doing work for me. And I'm like, hey guys i want you to see this person mm -hmm. like because like you think i'm the work i'm not the work it's this mm -hmm. person right that's that's mm -hmm. and that's i do that on purpose in, in these conversations and so but 
you know, I, I was talking to somebody, I was doing a lecture today and somebody was like, what if I just can't, or I'm too afraid? And I'm like, then turn it off. Yeah, it's, it's not okay. time. Maybe the timing isn't right. Yeah. And it's like, and like that's, and with my team, I'm like, you don't want to show up. Like I have these things called wild card days. Like it's like, if it's a wild card day, like don't show up. Or if you show up and you want to cry and it's just, you know, it, I'll sit here and listen to you cry for mm -hmm. an hour. You know, it's like, and I've had like my senior most people I work for, like my clients, like at these, at these, like, and they just show up and they're like, they just cry. I've, yeah, I've had that with clients with me too. And I'm talking about communication. I'm not a therapist. I'm yeah. not even mindful. I'm, <laughs> but it's okay. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, go for it. Like, it's like you. Yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. And then it's like, and then if you if you can't show, that's fine. Like, I totally get it. And so that that ironically is the I think one of the, the most kind of founding principles of this moment for me mm -hmm. has been like the most applicable. But every conversation needs like constraints are in essence. All conversations have constraints. Often we don't see the constraints, right? So okay. um, that's a good point. And so it's and one of the common ways I talk about it is that um, in the world where we inhabit space, which we still do inhabit space, space still matters. Like space actually would obvi obviously set the script of a conversation. So, mm -hmm. like if I say, if I say court trial, what do you picture? Uh, cold, uh, formal, dressed up be quiet you can't talk yeah yeah so and then describe the room that that's in it's a white with um tall ceilings wooden benches and wooden uh stands for the witness and a wooden place where the jury sits that's Very right serious and then a flag some flags yeah. up there that's right so like the, the space actually helps set the script of that conversation so the reason you get formal and you get you kind of have that the thing is because you have an image already when you went walk in so it's really hard to go into a courtroom and be like let's have an informal conversation like it's like it's just like every single thing in that space is set up to ensure that you're not going to have that you're not going to have a formal conversation and if i said like Describe a room that the AA, an AA meeting is in. Mm -hmm. What would you describe? What, what's the room an AA meeting would be in? I think of like a, a church basement, uh, folding chairs, um, a coffee machine with not very good coffee. Yep. You, you, you and everybody else in, I've ever, ever asked that question. You know, so it's like, so like that's like, there, there's nobody who basically is saying, well, I think it's like in a courtroom. You know, or, <laughs> right. it's kind of like a disco, but in a boardroom, which by the way, I promise you, there are a, a meetings that happen in boardrooms, right? It's like, so it's like, but it's like, but it's like, but the reality is it's like, so, but so we have a very strong set of things that we think are already constrained. They are constraining mm -hmm. us. And mm -hmm. so it's our job to break those constraints, reset those constraints, reset the rules of a conversation to make it feel safe. And then if it's not feeling safe, make it feel safe again. And then make mm -hmm. it, and make, so, so can I give you my favorite historical example? Please do. So in the, not just in the US, around the world, duels stopped in around 1842. Like people stopped fighting duels. I mean, there's still, you, you, could, you could argue that gang violence is a form of duel, but, 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 the, but duels as they've been, they've been kind of, they've been used for years. And, duels were governed by a set of rules a set of constraints called the code duello so most commonly if like you've seen Hamilton or something like that you would know the code duello from that like it's like the 10 rules of duels mm. but what happened 
as we got later into like the 1830s and 40s is people like were kind of more like, yeah, you challenged me to a duel. I recognize that we have issues. I kind of don't want to die though, you know? So it's like, so what would happen is if you said something I disagreed with, Laura, I would, I would basically say, I challenge you to a duel. I'd be like, I challenge you to a duel. But the new code duello was, I give you the rules. So that means you have control of the rules. So you can write the rules of the way the duel happens. So the most famous story of a duel that never happened is, true story, is Abraham Lincoln was challenged to a duel by a good friend. He was given the rules. So basically Abraham Lincoln could set the rules of the mm -hmm. duel. Mm -hmm. He set the rules and the rules were, we'll fight with broadswords, Civil War broadswords, uh, or not Civil War, uh, 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 Revolutionary War broadswords, and we'd stay 12 feet apart. So like socially distanced COVID duel. <laughs> so they got to the dueling field, field and the other person just burst in hysterical laughter. He was like, this is ridiculous. And they went home friends. Um, and so that's an example where changing the rules basically did something more significant than like it kept people alive. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the way, what popped up to replace duels in American politics? Debate, uh, debate yes. So okay. Lincoln-Douglas debates, 1850s, really good debates on a really yes. important issue around yes. um, about about um abolitionism and mm -hmm. like civil rights three days really well thought through really articulated like we started to live through debates which was fine when we had good rules of debates and before we actually put debates on television and by the way debates you've been seeing aren't even debates at this no, point no no so, they're i don't yeah. know what they are well you need to come up with a name for that because yeah yeah <laughs> Come on, Fred. Name, name it. So, so re. So, what I'm saying is like set and reset the rules constantly. Yes. Like, like I'm writing a piece. We're we're pitching a piece right now, which is basically going into the holidays. Why you would design silence into, say Christmas or say Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Um. So basically, it's like, what what does silence do? And so for some families that doesn't that feels like not natural, mm -hmm. but for some families that can't talk, um, maybe just doing together is the best thing that they can do right so i've been giving lectures all over the world really and like i have a lot of people coming back to me saying your point about when you can't talk just do is really shifted my whole dynamic like i'm my father-in-law is teaching me how to play golf but mm -hmm. we're not talking about politics we're just he's just teaching me how to play golf and so what that does is building the bonds between mm -hmm. father and daughter She's like, I don't want to learn how to play golf. You know, it's like, but, but it's like, it's building the bonds and it's still communing and it's still connection. It's just no words necessarily. And so that's the way that we can kind of get through these kinds of hard moments that we're in right now that might be surprising, but. Yes, I love this as you're just giving me chills. <laughs> I have it too, but I think I just got cold. So I think it's different. <laughs> so beautiful. So beautiful. Well, Fred, thank you. This is just so awesome. Is there anything else you want to say um, to? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just say two things. One is like, as I end the book with, it's like, it is really important for your listeners and for people like that, like you to be relentlessly telling stories of people who've had positive conversations right now, because the dominant story source is coming back to us saying, we can't talk. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you and I and everybody who's listening to you need to be out there being like, no, 
we can't. And here's an example of where that happens. So like, so like it's really, I, I just ask people to be relentless about telling positive stories when, it, when they can think of them. Um, and then lastly, I was just like, this is your job. Like it's why, why you're on earth is to have conversations. So it's like, and I promise you, you'll have a richer, better life if you do more of it. So uh, I guess the two ways I'd think. I'd end. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that these conversations are going to leave all of us better off afterwards, even if we don't agree. Totally. Than, than before. So thank you so very much. Um, Making Conversations is the book. I'll put a link to it. And uh, Fred, you're doing great work. I really appreciate the time uh, to talk to you. This has been beautiful. It really inspired me. Thank so you. Thank Laura. you. All right. Bye.